By now you'll have heard or seen that I'm working with a new golf app called Tangent, who are also sponsoring this show. It's the smartest AI caddy in golf and is able to recommend not only clubs to hit, but target locations based on the math behind strokes gained and your own personal shot patterns. Unlike many other shot trackers, it also takes into account and adjusts for hazards that are out there. It has sensorless tracking with an amazing automatic swing detection that you can use with your Apple Watch or your phone without any need to buy any attachments for your clubs. And my favorite part, the post-round analysis data helps you immediately see where you can improve and gives you simple breakdowns that you can dive into if you want much more detail about your stats. It then links this data to recommendations and actual practice drills that you can use to improve. Getting measurable data for both on-course and practice drills makes Tangent one of the best game improvement ecosystems that I've ever seen. So download Tangent for free on the Apple App Store or at tangent.golf and use promo code SWEET30, that's S-W-E-E-T-3-0, for 30% off. So you'll get a free trial, and if you like it and want to continue, it'll give you 30% off a subscription. So just try it out, play a few rounds with it, and I know you'll love it. So that's Tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, and enter code SWEET30. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to another episode of The Sweet Spot. This is John Sherman from Practical Golf. And as always, I'm joined by... Adam from Adam Young Golf. So today we've got David McKenzie from Golf State of Mind. David is a uh, mental coach that Adam and I have known for years. We're happy to have him on the show. Dave, why don't you briefly introduce yourself, the type of work you do with golfers on your website. And I know you do a lot of direct coaching as well. And then we'll after that, we'll premiere our topic for the day. Sounds great. Well, it's good to be with you guys. I'm really keen to see where this conversation takes us. Yeah, so I've been coaching the mental game of golf for over 10 years now, full-time working with players of, of all levels. Got into it via being a competitive player myself and just realizing how bigger factor that was in, in my performance. You know, you, you can have the skills, but if, you're, if your mind's not right, you're not going to be able to access those skills. And this was sort of 20 years ago when there was little out there on the mental side of the game, Rotella and a, and a few other people that were doing something. And I found it very interesting, not just for exploring how to get better at golf, but exploring how to get better at life. And so, as I know you've mentioned in, in a number of your tweets, John, that uh, you know golf is a lot like life. So I really enjoy that aspect of it, how we can learn to be better and live better lives through the, the game of golf and obviously improve performance and enjoyment. So what are we talking about today, David? We're talking about the topic of goal setting, deciding on how we're going to use our precious time, what we want to get out of this limited time that we've got here, and how to best go about doing that. 
when you start with players and someone wants to work with you or someone's reading articles on your site, what's like your de facto stance on goals from like the 40,000 foot view? Because I, I, it's it's such a complicated topic for golfers because you see these golfers and I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to pick on the chasing scratch guys too much, but you see a lot of golfers like, I want to get to scratch. And then it's like, okay, now what? Or you just set these goals and, and we're going to kind of unravel this. But golf is a particularly, I think, difficult game to set goals with just because getting there is not as straightforward and sometimes they're just too lofty and then you you know what happens when you do that. So what's your like overall view on this topic? I think the first one is to decide why we do what we do. I mean, I work with players who some of them play two to three times a week. They have time to practice as well. They invest a lot of their lives in playing this, this great game. Why do you do it? And so with any goal that any player, you know, when I ask them what they want to achieve, you know, any goal that they come back to me with, it's like, why do you want to achieve that? And the most common one for your amateur golfer is to win the club championship. <laughs> they all have that one. And so why is that? Why do you want to dedicate time to doing that? And I think that we have to, you know, sort of initially peel back the layers on why, why we're doing it and then start from there and start with a plan, you know, whether that is a realistic or unrealistic goal and then put together a plan. So we take a lot of the decision making out of it all. You know, so you know what you're going to be doing each day, each week towards that goal. Do you find there's a core theme that almost all humans go towards when you peel back those layers of why? Why do you want to get the scratch? Oh, because I want to win my club championship. Why do you want to win your club championship? Because almost it all, all comes back to feeling good for a lot of people. Or are there two, three different core themes that you see with players that you work with? Yeah, I mean, I think that the ego is a factor in a lot of these goals. You know, winning the club championship, having your name up on that board, I can be seen to be a good player, which I think is is in all of us. And I don't think you can fully get rid of ego, but whether it should be a factor in the goals that we set, I think is another another question. But how about, you know, if you knew that to win the club championship, that the last five years that it's been played, the score has been 75 or better is a better goal to become a golfer that is shooting 75 or better consistently better than the goal of winning the club championship. I think it's a better goal because I think that you're more in control of that goal compared to winning the club championship, which there are a lot more variables. The other players, the weather, how you feel that day, what game you have that day. Whereas if you're setting the goal of being a 75 or better golfer, you can decide on your plan to do that. And also when you have a goal of winning the club championship, it puts a lot of pressure on that tournament. It's like my success is hinging on this one event. And invariably players don't do too well when they have that season long goal in that event. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's setting controllable goals has always been something that when I've learned about goal setting has been an important theme. Yeah, if you if you shoot a 70 on that day and someone has a lights out round, the best round of their life and shoots a 68 and they beat you, you might feel disappointed with that, whereas you've actually achieved a, a great thing. You've beaten what should be your goal. Someone else has come along and done something that you're not in control of and you shouldn't feel you shouldn't feel upset over that really so yeah setting controllable goals is something I've always tried to do when I'm doing my own goal setting right and I think that's a key fundamental part of this is that the future is uncertain we don't know what is going to happen and you know if we take the around a golf as an example of that you know when I ask a new student 
what's your goal for the round? They're always going to give me a number to start off with until we do some work together and we, we set more achievable process goals that, that they're in control of and they end up playing with more freedom. But yeah, it'll always be to shoot 80 or better. So, you know, in the same way, the club championship or any sort of outcome oriented goal is going to do that, is going to kind of be a distraction from you being your best performing self. It's so difficult in golf as well because, you know, control, it, we don't have control over so many variables, right? We're like the the people around us and what they shoot. We don't have control over the environment, whether we get a good bounce, bad bounce, whether the wind picks up after we hit a shot, whether it's a windy day or not, you know, even shooting a specific number like 75 well, what were the course conditions that day? I mean, 75 could be a great score or a poor score, depending on, you know, was it soft greens and no wind or was it blowing a gale and, of course, playing long? And then even you can get down to a granular level, even if you want to get really down into some of the process stuff that I work on, like ground contact. We don't really have control over our motor system. You can train yourself to control the club face better over time. You can train yourself to hit the ground in the right place. You can train yourself to put yourself in, into certain positions if you want to, but ultimately we don't have full control over those things. We just have to tra train ourselves and hope that the good things come out. And that's something that you said earlier, very early on when you talked about what you do, David, is a lot of mental coaching is about accessing the skills that you have. And I do find that as a, a hugely important thing, you know, reaching, everybody has a certain potential of what they can achieve with a given technique, but fulfilling that potential, a lot of it is down to the mental stuff. Yeah, exactly. And then there's, you know, what game you have that day, your best game in what in, in one round could be your C game. You know, we know from looking at the stats of the tour pros that they've, they've got their A game 10% of the time, you know, or maybe even less than that. So it's being able to get the best out of yourself and having a plan. And that's where these, these internal goals or these process goals come into place. Cause you've got to have that. If you go out there and you don't have that, that plan, those sort of focal cues and reminders when you're out there, then you will be just be sort of fluctuating with whatever the outcome is and whatever thoughts are bouncing around in your head at the time. But if you've got like that clear mental plan, the same thing with like, you know, what you're doing in a, in a day. You know, if you don't have that sort of timetable, that calendar, those reminders, then you can easily just go wherever your mind wants to go, right? John's licking his lips because he knows that the true controllable stuff is the the process, which will, I'm well, sure we'll Well, yeah, get I to. mean, I'm very interested to talk about, you sent us a document with some of your philosophy on goals. And, and of course, I, I'm nodding my head to a lot of it. And you have this external versus internal. And I have a lot of thoughts on that. And like, just having to strip away my ego and talking with other golfers. You just have to – golf is such a tricky game, I believe, mentally and with goals is that you have to truly strip away everything. I think the winning, you know, winning club championships, getting to X handicap, shooting X score, I think you have to do your best to like strip all that away and really get to the core of this is for fun. Why are you playing this? And the process of being on the course and what you can control. We're, we're definitely going to get into that. But one thing you sent in the beginning that I personally love, I think Adam and me, maybe we don't disagree on this. I think people have different interpretations of what motivates them and what resonates with them. But you had a quote 
from Dave Brelsford, who is the coach of the British cycling team, who I believe had a pretty miraculous turnaround with them. The quote is, for long-term success, it's the aggregation of marginal gains. Let's talk about that a little bit first, because I think that for golf in particular, that's a really important concept because you know, waking up and being a different golfer and shooting 10 strokes lower and winning your club championship, that from beginning to end, there's a lot of little things, setbacks, gains, and they're hard to notice. So I, I love that concept, marginal gains. So do, do we want to talk about that a little bit first? Yeah, let's do that. I mean, if, if you have a game improvement plan and it's put together in the right way, you know, if you're working with someone like Adam and he's, he's given you a practice plan to do each day, you are going to get better by doing those things right? You might not notice a difference in your performance each day. It's like losing weight or going to the gym, going having a gym session. You know, you don't feel stronger or lighter at the end of each day. It's a, it's an aggregation of those marginal gains. And I think that that's what well, a lot of players get sidetracked by those results and whether they are getting better and not really fully committing to the process of getting better and sticking to their plan. And, you know, whether it's whatever sort of time frame your goals are or the plan that you've committed to, I think that we want to assess performance metrics, you know, at the end of a period of time, not at the end of, of every single day, you know, or every round as being an indicator of where you are with your game. Yeah. The, the way I, I feel like I put the term incremental progress in my book probably like 80 times, just because I think literally anything in golf a lot of golfers take it as this all or nothing proposition. So whatever they're looking to get better at, strategy, picking smarter targets, like not losing their temper, committing to a pre-shot routine, the practice stuff, ground contact we talk about all the time on the show. It's it's so hard to get yourself in the mindset of like being, I can get a little bit better at this and then have some setbacks versus expecting these like, I think the golf industry sells a lot of golfers on big breakthroughs. That's just how marketing is in golf for training aids for golf clubs. Like they're expecting something big and significant right off the bat. And that's not how getting better at golf and and really anything else in life works. So I always have to remind myself of this and anyone who listens to me for golf advice is that everything has to, I believe, look through the lens of little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better, setback. <laughs> and then not being discouraged by that and understanding that was supposed to happen. So I, I just, I think quotes like that, you know, reading books, James Clear book mentions this uh, on habits. It's so important. And, and I think that'll be a nice bridge into the types of goals you like to set with your students because the incremental gain to me is more of that habits. We'll talk about internal goals versus if you're always thinking about trying to shoot a 75 or beating someone, like that is just like burned in your head all the time. And it's so hard to remain patient in a very frustrating game with that and on your mind all the time. So yeah, I'm all for incremental little improvements over time because that I think keeps you more patient. Exactly. Yeah. Patience is such a key word there in the whole goal setting process and the game improvement process is to be able to remain patient and objective and appreciate that it is a longer term commitment. You know, it's not like it says on the, on the front of the front cover of the, the golf magazines, you know, this one tip is going to save you five shots around. It's five shots over months or, you know, maybe a year to improve by five strokes. Setting that expectation with yourself that it is, that is the way this works. 
On the patience thing, trying to tie in what John said as well, lots of players will jump ship because, as, as you said, with training aids, lots of people believe that, and I was in this situation myself as an amateur, that there's something out there that's missing from your swing. And if you can just find that one thing, everything's going to click and you're going to start hitting every shot like a tour pro. That's what people genuinely believe. And the reality is it's, it's not. It's, as you said, it's incremental gains of little things. So, you know, an example of this is someone on my eight-week course at the moment. They, they've been tracking religiously ground contact, you know, averages, standard deviations, things like that. I taught everybody how to do that at the start of the course. And one guy emailed me this week saying, well, I've, I've improved my ground contact by half an inch on average said even the consistency didn't improve the standard deviation is the same but he's moved it from i think it was about an inch and a half behind on average to just an inch behind on average now on a, on a divot board and he says his handicaps dropped five shots in the six weeks that we've been doing it so he's like people most people wouldn't be happy with that right oh i've had half an inch change in six weeks but these things can make a big difference and you if you understand how these small things can make a big difference to your game and you can keep patient with it, because the worst thing is what golfers everywhere are doing. They try something for a week, two weeks, three weeks. They don't see a huge change, and so they jump ship onto the next big swing tip that they go or the next big training aid that's out. So you know, I think that's just an important thing for people to understand. We, we understand this mindset of wanting to find that secret, but it, it doesn't exist really. Right, exactly. I mean, that's why I think a plan should be like over, what, three months, a three-month plan. I think that seems like a good time frame to make some changes with what you're doing. But I think you're right, Adam, and sometimes those things can work because that, that player thinks it's going to work to to change, change it up and change something. I mean, you know, the number of tour players that, you know, look in on the driving range to see what somebody else is doing or what coach they're working with or training aid or whatever. And then they immediately go and get that because they think that's going to work for them. And then, you know, because they believe it will, it, it does. And then in the longer term, it often doesn't. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's a big thing. So an example of that would be a putter. For example, someone changes their putter and for the next two, three weeks, they're putting really well. And then they change their putter again. And for the next two weeks, they're putting really well. But at the end of the year, they're the same. <laughs> so it's, it's just jumping from one placebo to the next, really. Right, exactly. So let's talk about, I think this will probably be the crux of the conversation because it's. Uh, I think these concepts are, are very powerful. Do you want to define the difference between an external and an internal goal? And then we'll kind of dive into both of them and how you think they relate to players' progress. Yeah, so an external goal is anything that you're looking to achieve that's outside of, of yourself. So winning a trophy, winning a tournament, how much money you make, your ranking at the end. And an internal goal is things that you directly have control over or you have, it's more in your sphere of control. So how you spend your time is, is an internal goal. You can choose how you spend your time. You can set goals that are specific to your game. Greens in regulation, scrambling, whatever it might be. Sure, you, you don't have full control over whether you achieve that, but that's, that's more of an internal goal because you're not comparing it to other players and you're not putting it in the context of what you're going to achieve with that. It's about that particular aspect of your game. So let's start with external goals because I think that's what a lot of golfers 
default to it. That's what the messages I receive. Like, hey, John, I'm looking, you know, I'm a 15 handicap. I want to go down to a five or I want to do this. And I'm like, okay, that's great. Why? Like how? <laughs> the follow-ups. What do you see as the pros and cons of external goals? I think one of the pros of external goals is that, again, as I said at the beginning, you can identify why you are investing your valuable time in that goal. Okay, I want to win the club championship. I would be happy you know, ending my golf career with winning the club championship. That would be the greatest, the biggest achievement for me in, in the game of golf. And then the upside of that is to see yourself as becoming that player. You know, so you get a, a look at yourself in the future and, and, to, and to figure out why it is that you want to achieve that. So I think that there are some upsides to external goals. I think visualization of external goals can be can be powerful, can be, you know, a motivation and can sort of affect how you feel in those in those moments when you're there. But then the downside is that it, if you're always comparing yourself to, to that player and, you know, everything becomes about the outcome, you know, I've got to shoot a better score today if I'm going to win that tournament or if I'm going to show visible progression towards that goal of winning the club championship, then that can interfere with the plan and be and cause performance anxiety and you know not allow you to fully commit to your plan. I've found I mean just personally that I've defaulted to external goals in in life in general in golf and I've had to kind of go away from those to get better meaning like I found that you know, whether you want to call it the hedonic treadmill stuff we hear in other parts of life is that when I would get to the top of the mountain, I'd be like, okay, what's next? And then there's, there'd be kind of like, I don't know if emptiness is the right word, but like this very brief moment of satisfaction that it's like, all right, what's the next one versus as I get older, I'm like, maybe I need to focus more on the satisfaction of the process and doing it. Why is this fun to me versus keep setting these goals for myself? I think you could do a little bit of both, but I just found for someone like myself, if I'm too heavy on the external goals, whether it's score certain performances and tournaments, handicap, whatever, I actually derive less enjoyment from it overall. That's just for me. Do you have certain players who you would push more towards external goals and for others, you would be like, no, this isn't for you? Or do you try and do a mixture? Yeah, I think that brings up a good point that it can be a personality, something that's determined by that player's personality and whether they have found that external goals have worked for them in the past. There are plenty of players that do talk about the success of their season in that way. I mean, you know, when you see the tour players release their season-long goals, a lot of those are external goals, winning a major number of top 10s, a number of PGA Tour wins and such. But, you know, that might work for, for that individual player. I'm speaking in general that I think that players can use external goals but not have that as like, you know, this is what this, the success of the season is all about. I find that on the other side of John, although I use process goals a lot, I find if I don't have an external goal, I can't commit to the process. Whereas when I have a clear external goal, the process is much more, is much easier for me to commit to. So I'm probably so what one would of be those. An example of that. Uh, so say, for example, uh, at the moment I'm approaching 40, I want to get into the best shape of my life at 40. So I know everything I need to do. I know how to count calories. I know how much protein I need. I know what I need to do with training, things like that. But in the past, I haven't had a big enough why. You know, the, the person that I was with 
liked my body. In fact, they liked the dad bod. So that didn't give me any motivation. So, you know, I need something more external. So I'm thinking of something like maybe doing a before and after. So posting a picture and say, well, here's my body now. I'm going to post a picture at 40 and I want to be in the best shape. And that would be huge motivation for me. And it's completely external, but that would definitely help me commit to my process. And I found the same in golf training as well. If I set myself the task of practice three times a week, but I don't have a reason to do that, I I don't do it. Whereas if I say, right, I want to reach the top of the leaderboard of this or even do something silly like win a Trackman Combine one month, that gives me a reason to do it effectively, which goes down to a point of, of why. Now I could go question that further and say, well, why do I want to be in good shape? Why do I want to win a track man? And that would come back, back down to ego. But yeah, that's my right. personality effectively. I think that's a good example. I mean, I, I, I could argue that your before and after is, is an internal goal because, you know, you're not doing it. You have complete control over that, right? Right. You, yeah. you can control what you eat, how many times you work out, you know, whether you go running or not. And so, yes, the look is external. We're looking at your external features, but the goal is is internal, I think. Maybe I'm mixing it up with outcome versus process. You know, I'm, I'm very outcome focused. Or I, 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 see, I see what you're saying. Least, yeah. Right. So you need to be able to see the outcome. Right. See what I'm working towards. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's good. I think it's good to have a vision like that. But I think that you could still put that in the internal goal category because, again, you have complete control of whether you do that or not. It's not that you are looking to have a better body than, than somebody else which I think a lot of these external goals in golf, you know, are like about the, the competition and where you finish and, the, you know, the, the sort of the ego side of it. Yeah, I think golf presents us with more bizarre questions than life. And I don't, maybe <laughs> we, we tend to get philosophical on this show, but in my separate goals outside of golf, I'm probably somewhat similar to Adam. Like I will set some type of goal. Like right now I'm lifting weights all the time. And part of it's just like, I want to get stronger. I want to protect my body. I want to age gracefully. And I believe based on everything I've seen, strength training is the most efficient way to do that. So now I've set the habit of I'm going to lift weights three or four times a week because I'm motivated by that. I want to stay healthy. I want to stay pain-free. It's good for me. It's good for my family. Like that's, I just found when I did that in golf, like I'm about to play my club championship in a week from now. I haven't won it still. Do I care? Yeah, I want to win it. I want my name on that board, but like I'm not I know that if I me personally, if I go into that saying like I'm going to win this thing or if I don't, this is a failure, like I will not play well. I think there are some golfers who are so damn good and so confident of themselves, they can walk into that and be like, "Yep, I'm going to win this, no problem," and that that's my goal and I'm going to do it. It doesn't work for me. I think I'd be a mental head case on the course if I was thinking about that. Yeah. I'm, go- I'm going to go with the approach that like, this is going to be fun. I'm going to compete against my friends at the course. I'm going to stick to my process and everything I've learned playing yeah. tournament golf. And I will live with the outcome, good or bad, and still right. have fun with that. That's just my version of it for golf because I just think it's a really bizarre game because we can't control so much. Right. And, and I think that that's your own internal or just knowing who your best player self is and for the best mindset for you to have to approach a game of golf. You know, some players will approach it like, I'm going to win this thing today. 
and that's their like that's their best best competitive mindset. And if yep. your best mindset is something different, it doesn't mean that it's any less of a less competitive a mindset. It means that that is what you believe is the best way for you to set your mind to approach that particular challenge. Yeah, I think we need to explore these things. I guess you, you almost experiment with these things and you see how they work. Right. Why don't we? Go into internal goals now. We're kind of jumping the gun here going into it, but let's define what those are and what you think the pros and cons of internal goals are versus external, of course. Yeah. And while I think of it, I just want to touch on something that I thought about there. It's like, I'm not saying that I don't think competition isn't good. I mean, competition is clearly good. The best players in the world on the LPGA and PGA Tour, you know, they make each other better, don't they? You know, competing each week. And I think that having that competitive energy and that competitive drive is is definitely a, a positive. And Tiger Woods went out there with the, the goal of beating every player in the field. And that was like his his number one goal. And, you know, as it pertains to external and internal goals, I mean, I guess that it's not like a pure one or the other. I think that there's always going to be that little bit of ego in every player. There's always going to be that little bit of, I want to see my, my name at the top of the leaderboard. Yeah, or even if it's you know, at I mean, the end for, of that tournament. For a lot of golfers, I think it's beating their buddies in a Nassau match. I just like competing against myself. I think there's all these different versions of why I think people play golf, and a lot of it's for competitive reasons. There's a lot of type A right. personalities who are looking to test themselves. Like I'm friends with a bunch of people now who found me through Twitter who are like really successful real estate people, and they're coming to me like, I want to get to scratch now. I've conquered real estate. Now I want to conquer golf. And they're going to go crazy on it until they get to that goal. I think that's awesome. If they want to do that and they get satisfaction out of it, awesome. Or someone else could be a little less enthusiastic about the competitive part, but they still want to, whether it's playing matches with their buddies or seeing their handicap drop over time. Like I think competition is good too, whether it's against yourself or someone else. But at the same time, I don't want people to fall into the trap where it's like, I'm not achieving these things. I'm some type of failure because I know golf can get you really down on yourself. I've been there where I've actually felt like I'm not achieving something as a person because of my golf game. And that's like a really crappy way to go through the game. So I'm always trying to like balance the two. It's hard. On that balancing, I kind of flip between them. If I'm playing poorly, I I switch more to process goals. (laughs) (laughs) When I'm playing poorly, it's like, I'm just just here for the enjoyment. I'm just here to practice a couple of times a week, hit a few balls. Whereas when I'm playing well, it's like right now I'm trying to achieve my goals. (laughs) Yeah, whatever adjustments you need to make and perspective you need to take is you know, is about that individual player. And that's why with the players I work with, we talk through these things. And so so that player can fully articulate the mindset that they want to bring, the plan that they're going to have throughout that round, and how they're going to respond to any challenges in the round. It's about responding instead of reacting. You know, you're responding with, with a plan. You can create more certainty about the performance rather than focusing on the uncertainty of, of the outcomes. I suppose the advantage of someone like you, David, is you're, you're able to help someone identify what's going to help them more. Like, for example, with John, you could say, right, well, you're going to be much more process-oriented. Adam, you're going to be much more outcome-oriented and see which one motivates us the most and, and right. get us there quicker. Do you have any tests at all that you do, like questionnaires that can help you identify that? Or is it more just a feel from yourself and just the discussions that you have with players? Yeah, I think it's the discussions. I mean, we just, you know, what I love about the, the sessions that I do is that we just kind of, you know, although there is a, 
a structure to them. It's a lot about, you know, self-discovery and discovering what it is that brings out the best in you on the course and what your opportunities are to get even better. So it's, it's certainly just through, through exploration in, in, in discussion. All right. So do you want to do some examples of the internal goals and uh, pros and cons? Yes, let's do that. Yeah. So, so internal goals, as I said, would be anything that things that you can more, that you can influence more. As I said, the, the time that you spend on certain activities, the activities that you decide to do in a round of golf, this would be your process, you know, or you being able to act, think and behave in a certain way. You can't necessarily control how you feel in a round of golf, but you can control the values and characteristics that you uphold in a round of golf. So I would say those those would be internal goals. Your scoring average, I would put that down as, as an internal goal. So stats that you're working on in your game, internal goal, practice goals that you would have for the week, You know how you're going to allocate your time for the week. We are going to take a quick break and we will be right back. We have an exclusive offer on one of my favorite golf shoe brands, True Linkswear. They just released their new Lux G Shoes, which is their first big release of 2024, and it is packed with a ton of features. The Lux G is available in both men's and women's models, and it combines tour level performance with a new fit and feel. You'll get the comfort that True Linkswear is known for with their Wonderlux midsole for a supportive yet comfortable ride. The Lux G is also fully waterproof with a two-year warranty, and they have designed it with their padded heel lock system to ensure stability throughout the entire golf swing. But they didn't stop there. True Linkswear always pays attention to the small details. There's padding on the back to prevent rubbing against your foot, an antimicrobial comfort insole, and the Lux G's come in multiple colors. Sweet Spot listeners can get 15% off the Lux G shoes by visiting truelinkswear.com and using promo code SWEETSPOT. Once again, that's truelinkswear.com and use promo code SWEETSPOT, that's one word, to get 15% off their new Lux G shoes. What's up, Sweet Spot listeners? I am super excited to introduce a new brand we're working with, Gooder Sunglasses. I pretty much do not go outside without sunglasses on, and I definitely wear them all the time on the golf course, so it's a really important product for me. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses that are lightweight, comfortable, and do not move while you swing. When I first got them, I was shocked at the quality. There's no way you would know they were $25 if someone just put them in your hands. Their golf sunglasses have HD contrast, so you'll see clearly when you're on the golf course, and you don't have to worry about losing them because they don't have a hefty price tag. They have a wide variety of designs and colors that should suit just about any style you're looking for, whether it's for golf or elsewhere in your life. All Gooder sunglasses are 100% UV protective and have polarized lenses. You'll also get a one-year warranty and a 30-day window to return them for free if you don't like them. If you want to try out a pair or two, we've arranged an exclusive discount for Sweet Spot listeners. Go to Gooder, G-O-O-D-R.com forward slash Sweet Spot and use promo code Sweet Spot at checkout and you will receive 15% off your entire order. That's www.g-o-o-d-r.com forward slash Sweet Spot and make sure to use promo code Sweet Spot at checkout for your 15% discount. Yeah, I mean, as I go through the list of this and 
think about what I try and tell players. I, I definitely defer towards this side of it more because the other end of it saying like, I want to win, I want to do this. Like we mentioned that earlier, so much of that is out of our control. We don't, you know, if you're going up heads up in match play in your in your club championship or stroke play event, you cannot control if someone gets on a heater and you play well too and you're just like, sorry, it just didn't happen that day. But you did control your mood pretty well, your routine, picking smart targets. You, you took care of that, but the inherent variability of the game, whether that's the variability of your technique that showed up that day or what version of your opponent showed up, like that is way outside of our control and i find that most golfers get upset too much with that and they focus too much on that part of it and then they get this like i don't know if unhealthy is the right word but it's it's kind of like they're stuck in this cycle where they're just like oh i you know this guy did this and you're like well you know what that that you can't control that. Like you just have to accept that. Like there are certain things about this game that we have to accept and let go of. And it's really hard to do. Like it could drive us crazy at times, but I love, I just defer more towards this internal stuff just because again, we can control these things to some extent. Right. And when I review a round with a player, when I get on the phone or zoom after a, a round, I don't even bring up score. It's were you able to get the best out of yourself in that round? This includes tour player clients. And so if that is the measure of success, that is all internal. And as I said, you, you don't, you can't necessarily, you can't necessarily control which game you have that day, your A game, B game, C game, but you can control whether you're getting the best out of yourself. And it's the same thing with, with what you're doing day to day. You know, the effort that you're putting into the, to what you're doing, you know, your level of focus on what you're doing. And, you know, if you have good self-awareness, you know, whether you're sticking to your plan or not, you know, how you're talking to yourself, you know, your attitude, you know, how you're dealing with the setbacks and everything that happens in the day and the obstacles that are, that arise. And so I believe that that should become the measure of success in a round of golf. Yeah, when I'm dealing with my players as well, I one of the first things I ask is is never score. I never even I'm not even I don't care about score usually for most people. It's what do you need to do or what did you need to do to improve that last round? And so I suppose it's kind of negative in a way we're looking at fault analysis. But it's like, well, why did you miss more greens that day? Was it ground contact, face contact, or directional misses? Or were there mental faults in there? Was it always club selection? So we have ways of tracking these things. So at the end of it, people, are, they know exactly what to go off and practice. And it's never about the score. If you get the, if you get the faults ironed out, effectively, if everything was a club selection issue and it's just increasing your awareness of that helps you lower that error in the future, then the, the score is going to come down as a result of it, really. Right, exactly. And I think what you're also touching on there is that sort of the, the growth and the fixed mindset, ego mastery mindset, and being able to kind of set your mind in, in, in a way that success goes deeper than, than the score that you get at the end of the game. It's about what you are learning about your game. This is a long-term play. What am I learning? And I, said, I think that you know, if we're reinforcing all those things like you are there, with those rounds, because most players, that's what the first question they're getting asked when they finish a round of golf is like, you know, what did you shoot? What did you shoot? Exactly. I was going to bring that up. Like the game habituates us into no one asks 
did you have a good time today? If I tell my parents I played golf, their, their instinct is to be like, what'd you shoot? I'm like, well, didn't I have, I mean, they, I know they want me to have fun or anyone. It's like, I always thought that was funny. It's like, you don't ask them like, how'd your day go? Do you have a good time with your buddies on the course? It's like, no, what'd you shoot? And we're just constantly being drawn into score results, score results that, again, it it pushes you towards that. And and I don't think score, like you said, is when I look at my round and look back to the shots and decisions I make, I understand that my score is variable. There's probably a 20-stroke variance from up to down. Some days I can't control it, but I like to review did I have a good time? Did I make smart strategic decisions? Did I stick with my routine? How was my grit? Stuff like that. And I tell people the same thing. It's like, I, I think about what's in my control. And yeah, sometimes I do execute those things and the score is just not as good as it could be that day. That's just the way right. it goes in this game. But I think your scores will follow that over the long run right. when you when you, when you you control what you can, which I think yeah. we're all in agreement of. Exactly. And obviously all the players I work with, you know, I want them to succeed and grow as players and shoot better scores and achieve as much as possible. But yeah, the best way in, in, in my opinion and what you know, the research is showing us is that with a more process approach and a more internal based approach and less comparison and less ego, less focus on the outcome you are going to perform better because your your mind is freer to be able to focus on what you choose and you're just less anxious about the consequence of that shot or that round. And and it starts early. It starts with, with juniors. I mean, I work with a lot of junior players and their parents are just piling on the pressure. You know, I often hear that from parents. You know, it's like, you know, what's the first question you ask them? Oh, what, what did you shoot? And so I try to rework that and get them to ask them different questions after a round so they start conditioning their mind that my success in this game or my enjoyment of this game is not only about shooting a good score. What do you think of an internal goal as simple as, am I having fun? Did I enjoy myself on the course today? Like That's something I think about all the time. Is what I'm doing on the course bringing me joy? Am I, am I thinking about that? Is it happening? That's become one of my big goals and I ask myself that question. Sometimes like this summer, I think I got a little too invested in tournaments and I withdrew from a couple of them because I was like, I think I'm getting burnt out. Like this doesn't feel fun right now. Like I don't need to prove anything anymore for the next couple of weeks. Let me just go play some fun rounds with friends. Always asking myself that question and thinking about fun because for 99.9% of players, I know you work with some tour players and aspiring high end collegiate players and that, but for the most part, this is leisure for most golfers. And that's an internal goal that I always ask myself and others. Yeah. And I think that's about this like desire to striving to achieve outcomes to be happier. And so, as I said earlier, these, these junior players are getting conditioned to see you should only be happy if you had a good score. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's, it starts early. And, you know, we're all conditioned by that to some extent. And so I think that's another great reason to have these internal goals is there's a saying, you know, the the journey is more important than the destination. Sure. And so a lot of these players, they're, they're losing focus on that journey. It's all about the destination. It's all about reaching that next level of like happiness of satisfaction when there's a lot of happiness and satisfaction right in front of them right there and now. And so, you know, I think that that's another valuable part of these these internal goals is to keep refocusing you on on the present and the enjoyment of what you're doing now and the gratitude 
that, that we all should have for being able to play golf. And obviously that gratitude is a very powerful, positive emotion that can help you improve performance. Definitely with my players, I set them process goals or internal goals. It might be as simple as just tracking your ground contact in the round. It might not even be to try to improve it necessarily, but just to increase your awareness of it. You know, each each shot, put a tee down on the ground, hit your shot, check the divot. Did you make contact with the ground in the right place or track and face contact? I know certainly from a, a playing perspective, every single shot that I hit, I have a certain process internal goal for it with a driver it might be to try and hit the center of the face with irons it might be to try and hit the ground in the right place with wedges it's controlling the length of my swing and the commitment to the shot so it goes a little bit more into the mental aspect of it and these remain consistent from week to week month to month i could probably i probably had the same goal with my driver over the last five years of playing that's not to say that you know you can't change it but it's very process and internal oriented it's never i want to hit it or i need to hit this fairway in fact i give myself the freedom with when hitting a driver to not hit the fairway i understand the stats the pros only hit 60 percent of the fairway so i don't put the pressure on myself to do that it's more can i hit the center of the face that's far more controllable for me yeah and i think the more important thing about that is something we always talk about on the show is feedback if you're not paying attention to these things or setting these type of internal goals that you can review after the round because most golfers they play they write down their score they remember a few good shots and probably get pissed off at a lot of bad ones but if they don't have this list of things or processes that they're focused on you know working with someone like adam you're going to get these impact based feedback things or stuff you're tracking I think that organizes you more efficiently because now you're paying attention and you're seeing feedback and that's how I think your habits and performance can improve rather than just like showing up playing and obviously it's a little bit more analytical and you need more commitment to it. But this is, I think, what improvement looks like in golf is that you are earmarking a few things, four or five things that are important, keeping track of them, the feedback, thinking about them in practice too. And then like that whole loop is... That's what golf improvement looks like, I think. So the the feedback is super important as well, in my opinion. Right, exactly. And so I I have this process worksheet that a golfer will fill out for the different phases of the round, the the pre-round, the pre-shot, the during the shot, post-shot, in-between shots. And and we write down what their goals are for each of these phases. That provides them with accountability. It's like, here, here are the goals. Were you able to do that throughout that round? And it's not easy by any means. You know, it's a hard thing to do because the mind and the way it's designed is always wanting to predict what's going to happen next. And so to be able to keep keep yourself present and fully focused on what you're doing now is, is a hard thing to do. And that's why I think that, you know, mindfulness is, is, is a valuable thing to practice because no matter how good your plan, if you're not aware of whether you're focusing on your plan or not, it's not going to work. Having a plan, I mean, I've got my whiteboard right in front of me now and i really need that you know once i get going during the day and you know if i don't have those sort of allocations of time and it's a and that's another form of process it's like okay i'm spending one hour on that task it's not about the outcome of that task you know if it's writing a book for example it could be like i'm writing 500 words it's not like i'm finishing that chapter so it's about effort and it's about discipline as opposed to 
that outcome because that outcome can make you anxious and lose focus on what you're doing. I totally believe in that. I, I probably mentioned my habit tracker on some other episodes when I was writing my book or trying to get back more into fitness. I just had three or four things I was looking to accomplish during the day and I kept the habit tracker on my desk and I just X'd it off. And that creates like this feedback loop where you're like, you're seeing more and more X's, you're getting used to that habit every day. Seinfeld had a famous story about him writing jokes. It was in James Clear books. It's called Breaking the Chain, where his approach to writing jokes is I think he kept a calendar on the wall and he just X'd off every day he sat down and wrote jokes. And the more X's he saw, the more burden he felt to keep it going then not break the chain. And I think these are, you can use these in golf as well, whether it's saying like, I'm going to work on this type of practice three times a week for 30 minutes, or I want to commit to using a pre-shot routine on the course and keeping track of that. Like, I think there's a number of ways you could break this down for what's important for you to keep track of. But yeah, I, I'm a big believer in that because I'm very, I'm just a really disorganized person and I can get lazy just like anyone else. And if I don't have it sometimes in front of me and can get into that feedback loop and tracking it, it's so simple, but it's like super powerful. Like that's how some really prominent people have achieved their, achieved their goals in a lot of industries. It's just like these basic minutia of habits that they've formed and stick with. They didn't set out to like start this great company or do all these things. Because when you keep thinking about that, it's such a burden for your ego. You're like, I'm never going to get there, but I can write 500 words a day. I can do that. Anyway, that's my little diatribe on that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Breaking these things down into small pieces that are that, that you can do. You create your plan or you plan the work, work the plan. It's not about success or failure. You know, if you're able to do those those reps in the gym, or if you're able to write those 500 words, or if you're able to hit 100 shots focusing on whatever it is in, in your swing or working on your pre-shot routine, that is success. And that's taking you closer to that long-term goal. I had a player recently on these topics. We use the tracking sheet that I have to track kind of on-course faults and see where their scores could improve. And they were adamant before it that it was always a technical thing. Like, I need to change my swing. I need to do this and that. And even I thought, okay, it might come back to a ground contact thing. But it turned out they were making more errors that were strategic. So they were hitting it maybe a little bit offline, maybe 10 yards offline and missing greens. And you shouldn't really be doing that too often. Like a 10-yard offline miss with a 7-9 is not a bad miss. Or they were making club selection errors a lot of the time. They'd hit a perfectly struck shot and they would land short of the green. That's club selection. And or judging win, things like that. So, you know, we picked something. We picked the strategic part and the club selection part and I just asked them to rate out of five what their level of focus was on that you know how well they prepared for each shot so if they missed something out then they would give themselves a lower rating and so the game became very process oriented it's it's like what's my average score for how well I went through the process of did I pick the right target did I pick the right club and so they would see a success, even if they shot a, a poor score at the end of it, they would look at their process and they'd say, well, you know what? I got a four out of five on average for going through my process, which beats last week. 
And so, yes, they might not have scored great the first round they did, but if you track their scoring average, it came down over the course of a season of doing that. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, in a round of golf, shooting a good score is complicated. There's so many variables, uncertainties, things that have to go your way in a round of golf, whereas executing a, a process is very simple and, it, and it's bringing your attention to what you need to be doing in the moment. That's why I think that it's those goals are, are key in every round. So I think that's, that's great that you're, you're doing that with your players. You had a section in some of your work on goals where you talk about the concept of taking inventory of goals. Maybe we've covered a little bit of that, but do you want to kind of expand on that a little bit more? I think we're getting into it now, but what's your process for once you establish maybe these internal goals and stuff you're tracking and keeping feedback? Like how do you take inventory, hold yourself accountable, that type of stuff? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously I come at it more from the mental side and you know, Adam can probably speak more to the technical side and what stats to look at and how you can kind of see what areas of your game need the most improvement to get towards your, your longer term goals. And I recommend that you break up the game into the mental, the physical and the technical and look at those areas as, as three parts and then decide on a, on a primary and secondary goal for each of those aspects. So what's the most important thing for me to work, work on? What's the next most important thing to work on? So you're prioritizing, you're appreciating or accepting that you have limited amount of time and what is the most important thing that is going to get, going to make the biggest amount of change in those three areas. So for the mental, for example, through round reviews, through journaling, hopefully that player has an idea of what it is that they need to do better mentally, whether it's fully committing to shots, whether it's getting better at self-talk or accepting the outcome of shots for the technical, that there might be a stat, greens in reg or proximity to the hole from wedges. And then obviously physical would be more along the lines of, you know, strength, conditioning, swing speed, balance, those sorts of things. Yeah, that's why I think People can do round reviews in a number of ways, but I have a few things that I'm paying attention to, a lot of the stuff we talk about on the show. But for example, like this summer, my I'll get super specific. I would think back to my rounds and I'm yeah, I'm like, I'm not driving it as well as I used to the last few years. I'm seeing a lot of spinny left to right shots. I know I'm healing it. I know that's a problem. So what am I gonna do? I'm going to focus on that in practice and just like be hyper-focused on that in the feedback and practice and then pay attention to it on the course and see, can I move that impact over however many millimeters it needs to, to, to kind of straighten that ball flight out and get some more ball speed on it. Or it could be stuff like I've certain times your patience is starting to run out in certain rounds. Like, is it a not not necessarily a temper thing or just like I'm, I'm losing my focus. Like, why is that? So, okay, now I'm paying attention to that. Am I really like focused before my shot? Like sometimes in the summer, in the heat, when the humidity is like, it's just harder to focus. So maybe I'll give that a little bit more attention. But I think there's kind of a checklist everyone can have where you prioritize two or three things in each category and you're paying attention to them. And as you, you know, taking inventory of that, I think it's, I, I just think of it as like this big loop between like, your rounds are, I think, great opportunities to test your game. And that's where the best data is, I believe, the best feedback, because you can practice all you want. You're not going to see things in practice that show up on the course. 
you know, golf is just a different test. And then you kind of pick those few things that you're noticing and you can't do that unless you're actually like looking back at your rounds. I think that's one of the most important things anyone could do is spending five to 10 minutes after every round, maybe not shot by shot, but most of them and looking for patterns and feedback. And these are things you can bring to the next round. Maybe it's strategic problems like Adam was talking about with his player, not even a, a technical or impact issue. You just don't know until you look for the patterns. Right. And I think patterns is a key word there because you know a lot of players kind of, they react to whatever the outcomes were of their performance in that particular round. And then they start practicing something that it wasn't in their plan because they had a poor putting round and they start to you know, spend more time on, on putting. That's not to say they couldn't improve their putting, but I think that, as you said, patterns and you know, what's happening over a period of rounds is probably a better indicator of, of where, where their game is as opposed to just kind of reacting to what was performing poorly in that, in that one round. Lots of people work on things that are kind of irrelevant as well or, or less relevant to their goal. So, for example, someone may incorrectly, I wouldn't say incorrectly, but they might, might track how many putts they had in a round. That's not a very good statistic. We know that now. There are better statistics out there like strokes gained. So, you know, they may have had 33 putts in a round and they want to get it below that. But they've actually probably putted or maybe putted quite well if they looked at strokes gained instead. So they go off and they spend a lot of time on their putting, whereas it might have been better spent on driving. So yeah, tracking and, and working on relevant things. I see this all the time when I use my tracking sheet with players. They, As the example I said earlier, there's loads of guys and girls who think that it's a technical issue that they need to work on. They go off and they beat balls on the range when we find out on the golf course when they're tracking everything. It's a mental error. It's club selection. It's judgment of conditions. Getting good feedback to really truly understand what you need to improve is probably the first key thing, in my opinion, when I'm working with players. Then you can go into like, okay, well, you're losing shots on ground contact. Let's track the average of ground contact. Let's track it on the course. Let's track it in practice. Or in John's case with face contact, he says he's healing it, hitting these high spinny fades. Well, let's track not only your ability to hit the center, you know, you can play a little game, you can put a little segment on the club face and see how many times in a row you can hit that, or you could play a game, how many times out of 10 can you hit that? You can even do a hitting different segments of the face. I do this with players all the time. I'll have five different segments on across the face, so a small toe, a big toe, small heel, big heel, and a center, and I'll see how many shots it takes for them to hit all of those windows. And as they get better at it, I make the windows smaller and smaller. We've even then placed that into a level-based system. You know, for a complete beginner, it's can you hit the toe side of the face? Can you hit the heel side of the face? For a pro level, it could be can you hit three millimeter windows either side? So it's it gives people these kind of games and they can look at this and say, oh, well, I'm at a level three with face strike. I want to get to a level six with face strike, much more controllable for themselves. I think the point we've we've talked about we've had mark brody on the show but stats are very important because it is good feedback but as you said the traditional stats can be misleading putts per round can be like if you had a really good ball striking round and you were hitting a lot of greens and you had 35 foot putts and you putted 35 times that is an indication of 
your proximity to the hole from your approach shot, not necessarily your putting performance. Whereas a more granular explanation of that is if you were tracking strokes gained, you could see over a period of 20 rounds, like, wow, I am performing disproportionately worse from four to eight feet from other golfers at my level. I need to spend my time here. Or fairways, for example, you could say you're tracking fairways hit. You know, one round you might have five out of 14 and another eight out of 14, but that just might be like literally 10 feet in, in the light rough or something like that, which is still a good drive. Whereas, you know, my belief is a good drive is that you have a clear path to the green and your ability to advance the ball and how far did you hit it? We're probably going to do a whole separate episode on stats, but I think advanced stats and we have so much access to them now with all the different stat tracking apps. We've talked about strokes gain that like that's step one and a better way. And then you kind of go deeper and you're looking, you're trying to get to that explanation of like what Adam said, is it a ground contact issue? It is this, am I picking the wrong targets with my irons? Am I leaving it short? I just need to take more club and stats can be very helpful, but you don't want to pay attention to the wrong stuff because then you're going to send yourself on a wild goose chase. And now you're working on something that will probably only give you marginal gains in scoring versus something else, whether it's learning to hit the ball farther or iron play versus grinding over 15 foot putts, which most of them aren't going to go in anyway. So that is the challenge of golf is uncovering like the little nuggets of your game where you're going to get the most impact and benefit from spending time on it. So I think advanced stats are a way to do that versus the traditional ones. And we've definitely spoken about that before. And Adam, how often do you think a player should look at their stats? It depends what ones. Uh, again, like strokes gained and things like that. I like I like that stat. I love that stat. But it doesn't tell you what that player needs to improve at the same time. Like someone could show me, oh, my strokes gained with my irons. Uh, you know, I'm losing three shots around of the handicap I want to be. And I'm, I'm yeah, like, why? Well, great. <laughs> Great, yeah, but why yeah, is it? Exactly. You know, are you, are you are you? Is it ground contact all over the place? Your face contact all over the place? Are you missing right or left? That's why I developed my own tracking sheet, fault tracking sheet, because it gets into this granular detail. And so, yeah, in terms of tracking things like strokes gained, I would say you know once a month, once every three months or so, we'd want to see a kind of improvement in performance there. But in terms of tracking the why, I like players to do that every shot, really. I like after each shot, a player to look at it and say, this could be improved. Or, you know, there are acceptable boundaries. There are lots of times I say to a player, look, you missed that five yards left, but don't worry. That's not a fault. Don't track anything for that. There's, there's nothing needs to be improved for that if it's, if it's five yards left from 150 yards. But if they hit it in a bunker... I'll want to know, was that a technical error? Did you hit it more left than you wanted to? Or was it an acceptable miss, but you just aimed too close to the flag and you should have aimed more at the middle of the green? So separating out, whether it was a strategy or a technical fault. I like players to have some kind of awareness after each shot. Perhaps that's not the best approach, but I've, I've found it's just my analytical mind i want to go that way with players definitely you know and if if a player is not that way inclined i'll get on the course and do it for them for them yeah i think that sounds like a good time frame for looking at stats like in sort of eight to 12 month time frame for setting stats based goals for the technical side you know so that players aren't looking at their stats after every round or every couple of rounds and getting too 
caught up in the stats and the outcomes. Because I hear that as well from players when I ask them their goals for the rounders. To have no three putts, you know, or to, to avoid double bogeys or to hit X number of fairways or X number of greens. And again, you know, all outcome goals that we don't have complete control over. I mean, Rory McIlroy can double bogey the first hole establishing those metrics and then kind of leaving leaving them alone and focusing more on on process. Yeah, I'd say for the for the outcome goals, I'm definitely with you there. Three month, twelve month timelines. It's more for the process goals. I like yeah. to, them to track yeah. track stay on top of it almost every shot really. Right, right. I completely agree. So with planning, like let's say you do have a list of process goals. Let's say it's like, oh I'm gonna work on some speed training, some lifting, some impact stuff, you know, whatever the list is of things that you say, I want to get better at this over the next three to six months. Planning, putting stuff on calendars, how do you find you get people to actually follow through on these habits? That's my biggest challenge to everyone else is like you get super hyped up about this stuff. You want to get better. And then you're kind of like, what should I work on today? Should I be doing the speed training or should I be doing that? Is is What's the best way or, or some of the best ways you've found to keep people organized and accountable over time? Yeah. I mean, in my training program, I have a couple of worksheets that I have players print out. One of them is the, the, the goal setting sheet, you know, establishing these goals for the different areas of the game. And then the other one is like a two-week plan. So it'd be like deciding on how much time that you can dedicate to those areas of the game. And you've got three places that you can work on your game. You've got home or gym. You've got the driving range practice area. And then you've got the golf course as well. So figuring out how much time you can allocate to golf for that week and then dividing it into those areas and figuring out specific tasks that you're going to do. I think that plan is key. And a lot of people will just not bother with the plan and just try to figure it out day by day, what they're going to practice, how they're going to work on their game. But you know, if you have that plan, it just takes all that decision making out of it that can cause like you to procrastinate or put things off or just not do them. Yeah, I agree. I, I think a lot of people, it helps me writing things down. <laughs> I think the act of like actually like putting physical pen to paper and then keeping it in front of me and, and tracking it is helpful. Some people, I've seen the technique of people need to like schedule it on their Google calendar or whatever, like Thursday afternoon at four o'clock, I'm going to be doing this. And the fact that they made that act and put aside that time, now they've kind of mentally held themselves accountable beforehand. And then if they see that time come and go, it's like, oh, well, I didn't hold myself up to that versus just I will get overwhelmed. And I think a lot of other people do. It's like, I could be doing seven different things right now, but I don't know what to do. So I think it's a combination of looking for the patterns, paying attention to the feedback, kind of poaching what you believe are the top two or three things that you want to work on. And then putting so much emphasis and priority on these, whether you need to schedule it or write it down, that it's like kind of burned in your brain almost. I think people will have a better chance following through on this stuff rather than the, yeah, you do it for a couple of days and you kind of get bored and you're moving on to the next thing. Because as we said in the beginning, the patience and incremental progress part of it, like you need to have that strong drive and that emphasis to keep the habit going or else you're going to give up when you don't see like these massive results initially. It's all kind of tied together in my opinion. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I think having that plan out in front of you so you can clearly see 
what you're going to do, I think is key. And then as you said, burning it in your brain, doing these things at set times each day, you know, you know, you referred to James Clear and he says in his book that time-based cues, you know, so it's like for me, you know, 545, you know, I, I meditate first thing. If I didn't do that meditation, then I probably wouldn't do it, but it's, it's now part of the routine and yeah, it's, it's very autopilot. E- yeah. easy to do. Journaling at the end of every day at a, at a set time, you make time in that calendar for those things and then you protect that time. But yes, you know, it could be like you, you go to the gym every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at a set time of day. That's supposed to be a very sort of habit forming method. Something that I do with, I, I do a lot of online practice plan design for people where I do a video analysis of their swing, suggest certain drills for them from a technical standpoint. And then we have drills for differential practice, variability practice, calibration practice, game simulation as well. And one of the things I do with that practice is structure it for them. You know, they tell me how much they practice per week. So it might be, twice a week it might be five times a day five hours a day for some people and i'll structure it i'll say okay well if you're doing five times a week for example and they could be short sessions 20 minute sessions well day one you're going to be doing technical drills day two you're going to be doing differential practice drills day three is going to be calibration and then as you as you reach your tournament time uh, day four day five you're going to be doing more simulation training setting up tasks and games where you're thinking less about technique and you're more trying to achieve a certain outcome. And so, yeah, I think, you know, having that structure for people, people absolutely love it, you know, because normally their practice is so unstructured, they just turn up on the day and it's just, right, let's just hit balls and address what's happening on the day. And you kind of need some of that flexibility, right? Mm-hmm. If you're if you're shanking it on the day, it's pointless working on a swing path exercise or even a ground contact exercise. You're going to have to address that shank shot. But certainly having some structure in terms of, right, I'm going to be doing a, a differential practice drill today. Okay, I'm shanking it. Let's do a differential face strike drill. And so I implement that, I create these plans that have that overall structure, but have the flexibility within it to hit the issues that you're having at any one time because golf is just so dynamic. Yeah, no, I really like that. And then they have the added accountability of reporting back to you. Mm -hmm. Not everyone has a a coach that they can do that with, but it's been proven that accountability is, is a big motivator and a big key to success. So even just sharing your worksheet or your plan with someone else that would be interested to, to, to look at this and to be involved in your your game improvement process, but even that, the golfing buddy that you, you have, this is what I'm working on this week. So I think that, that that's important as well. And then just knowing what your obstacles can be, what, what causes you to sometimes procrastinate or put things off or what excuses that you can that, that you have and then figuring out ways that you are going to eliminate those obstacles or just make those obstacles less likely to affect what you actually do. It could be like practicing without your phone. If you're someone I see, see it a lot, especially with younger players, they're practicing, but how much actual time they're spending practicing versus taking the phone out of their pocket the whole time and looking at it, that would be one of those things that could be considered an obstacle that we better just leave the phone in the car or just trying to think it could be a good idea to almost set up some kind of group maybe a facebook group or something where there's accountability 
a kind of accountability group or having a accountability buddy kind of thing. I know that works yeah. well for weight loss. There was some apps at some point where people, you know, they set these certain goals for weight loss and then they actually bet and people bet against them. So there was money <laughs> involved. So they would say, okay, well, if I achieve this weight loss, you've got 10 people betting against you. So you'd get a thousand dollars. And if you, if you don't achieve this, you have to give that money to, to them. And so that they showed that that greatly increased for obvious reasons, uh, someone's ability to achieve right. weight loss. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a, a close friend. We speak every Friday morning um, at 9 a.m. without fail. And it's like a 10 minute conversation. And we just share what we're going to work on the following week. And then obviously recapping whether we were able to get those things done. And I feel like that's a big, a good source of motivation. I also think another, anyone who's pretty good at anything figures a lot of this stuff out through trial and error. They learned it from someone else. But I think play, uh, sometimes golfers get, uh, little discouraged or scared of playing with other golfers who are way better than them. And I've learned so many things. Like there was a guy at the first course, I, I when I moved out of New York City, at the first course I belonged to, he was like a really great tournament player. And I got to play with him like 20, 30, 40 times. And like he wasn't very forthcoming with his quote unquote secrets, but he would kind of throw me something once in a while. And I'd just watch him like I would watch him after every round. He would go back on the range if his driver was kind of not working that day. Like he was a little bit overboard, but this is what made him so great. Like I saw the intent. He kind of talked about his process during tournaments, how he would do everything exactly the same. Even the way he picked up the tee and the the way he he said even the pace at what he walks, like in his routines. And I'm like, this seems like such minutia. And then as I got better and I, I learned these things from someone like him, I was like, oh, maybe I could be doing stuff like that. So I think being around other golfers who maybe are at a different level than you, you can kind of pick up on what they're doing on the course or ask them questions. And it kind of unearths some of these things. And then maybe you'll be a little bit more interested in doing them because you see the types of results that they're getting. That's been helpful for me as my development as a player and, and certainly being in more tournaments and, and having these conversations with other golfers is like you're kind of exchanging ideas. And yeah, you might be holding each other accountable. We all are trying to beat each other, but at the same time, we're kind of rooting for each other at the same time. So you, you can kind of create these communities for yourself. And I think they do exist in a lot of places, of course, because golf is a community for sure. Right, exactly. So one of the last things that we're kind of wrapping up here on time, we don't want to take up all of your day, David. One thing that you had in here that this document you sent us that I think is very important is rewarding yourself because sometimes when we have to do the things that maybe we don't want to do. I mean, a lot of this should be fun, but yeah, changing your habits, establishing new goals and sticking to it. There are some like carrots you can throw yourself. Could you talk about rewards for yourself or like milestones when you achieve something? Like what can we do to kind of make ourselves feel better about following through on all this stuff? Because that, that is the hardest part is following through. Right, exactly. With the players I work with, you know, I obviously try to reinforce and reward their their process as much as as much as possible. But yeah, I think if there's certain things that you f you find enjoyable or pleasurable that you can give yourself as a pat on the back, then that can be you know a helpful helpful incentive. Yeah, I think for some people, <laughs> if you want to like buy your, uh, I think a lot of golfers love to buy stuff for themselves, whether it's new shoes, clothes, or something like that. I think sometimes you can, rather than just indiscriminately spend the money all the time, but if there's something you're eyeing up and you achieve something big in terms of the processes, 
saying like, oh, I, I actually did spend three months doing 30 minutes of, you know, impact practice or maybe stuff you learned from Adam or I, I did stick to my pre-shot routine. I was, I did have a lot of gratitude in my round, something like that. It's like, oh, now I can buy those foot joys that I want to buy, something like that. I, th- I think it's nice to do something for yourself, maybe withhold a little something and say like, oh, when I get there, I can I can treat myself to something or maybe play a course that you've been wanting to play for a while, something like that. I, I think it's nice to do for yourself. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Giving yourself a, a carrot of some sort, and then hopefully that would increase your self-discipline to stick it out and give yourself that reward. It's a good idea. For sure. There's so many different ways to motivate people, but I think that incremental progress... I like the internal goals. I'm not necessarily against the big external ones, but golf is just like a deceiving game. And when you set those, I guess, goals that you don't necessarily have full control over, you might be setting yourself up for a little bit of disappointment slash disaster versus I can control my training. I can control my attitude on the course for the most part. I love the internal goals. So is there any other big ideas or did we we cover most of them? We're about visualization, David. Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, there's research around visualization that it can improve mood, improve motivation, you know, being able to kind of see yourself executing these goals, you know, being that player that you want to be, being able to focus on what's most important when you're out on the course or visualizing yourself overcoming obstacles that could prevent you from achieving your goals. So it's good for both preparation. I mean, it can be used for, for priming as well. So like before you're about to go and do something to kind of create an image of what you would like to happen in terms of like effort and focus and, and commitment to your goals. Seeing yourself being successful, you know, reaffirming why you're doing what you do, you know, because obviously there's, there's a lot of hard work to be done. And so being able to take a look at what you're doing it for and the player that you want to become, I think can be is a good part of the process or a key part of the process. When I was a kid, I used to do so much visualization because I was so obsessed with the game that I was only able to get to the course. I was My parents would drop me off on the weekends and I basically camped out on the golf course. And then I was able to go and hit balls on Wednesday as well. But Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, I wasn't playing golf. And my brain says, I need this. It's like a drug. So what I used to do is, I, I this is so geeky, but I'd sit down with a notepad. I'd write 1 to 18 on the side and I'd visualize rounds of golf. And I'd do it over and over. I'd visualize me if I were to hit different distances. So I would go through and say, right, now I hit it about here. I hit it to that bunker. I would hit this club to the green and I'd write down a score and I'd go through that. Then I'd visualize myself in the future or what I was weight training at the time at 15 because I wanted to hit the ball farther. And I'd be like, well, what if I hit it 30 yards farther? I'd be able to fly that bunker. I'd be hitting a nine iron to that green. And then I'd write down a new score. And I just do that endlessly. I'd, I'd even do different scenarios of a good day, a great day, a, a poor day. And I just, I must have played 20, 30 rounds of golf in my head each night that I wasn't do it, doing it. And I actually found those notebooks up in my attic a, a couple of years ago, a few years ago. What was interesting was 
it was, it was almost where I am now in my game was almost exactly what I predicted. You know, I, I did 10 year outcomes and I'll be hitting my driver 260 then. And that's exactly where I was. It almost lined up exactly. So there's something, you know, about these things like people always talk about vision boards and, you know, setting these long term goals. It's really interesting, I find. I'm not expecting people to do that. <laughs> I used to do that myself, but you know what I did? I visualized a golfer who didn't exist. <laughs> and I would go crazy <laughs> on the golf course. All right. I'd be like, oh, yeah, you're going to hit all these great everywhere. shots. Yeah. I was like, yeah, it just, it's go, go for it. I was just saying, get on the course and my golfer was nowhere to be found. Maybe I'm that person now, like you. I don't know. But I was, uh, I let my daydreaming get the best of me back then. <laughs> it, but I do, I, I'm not the, discourage what you're saying. I actually think that is helpful, certainly if they're reasonable goals, you know, keeping it in check with what you're capable of. I was just way off the mark on that stuff back when I was 15. Yeah. I would say that if you can combine that with uh, some meditation practice in the morning and then a little bit of visualization, uh, you could visualize the upcoming day. So like, you know, what you want to bring to that day, you know, athletes before a round or a game, will often visualize how they want the game to play out. And I think it's very interesting as well, just like how you can influence your subconscious, which is affecting your, your thinking patterns, how you respond in certain situations, how you move your body. It's really quite amazing. And there's quite a bit of you know, scientific research now around that and you know, studies that have been done, control groups with players that have visualized and those that haven't and with skill development as well. And Adam, you probably know more about that with regards to like you're know, training the golf swing. But yeah, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that it works in training. Wasn't there one study of basketball players? I don't know whether this was anecdote or not because I haven't been able to find it. But I, I know that lots of people talk about it where there were two groups of basketball players and one were asked to physically practice free throws and the other were asked to not practice physically but just do mental rehearsals. And at the end of a few weeks, the ones who did the mental rehearsals actually outperformed. And the reasoning they gave behind that was that they are, when they're visualizing it, they're constantly visualizing a positive outcome. Whereas when you're physically practicing, you're getting a mix of positive and negative outcomes. Again, I don't know whether that study was real because I haven't been able to find the specific one, but I've, I've certainly heard of that one. Perhaps, David, yeah. you can link in the show notes or something, some of the studies that you have on it. Yeah, I've, I've, I've read a lot of studies on visualization and that, that does ring a bell that studies. And, you know, I think it's completely plausible that that could be true, that those players perform better because they were just seeing positive outcomes. And that just affects your mental and emotional state or your internal state when you're actually there for real. It's like there's, there's less fear. You know, there's less, less of those negative outcomes to interfere. I think for something like putting, where confidence is such a huge thing, I know people always say, oh, well, confidence is kind of ethereal. It's not going it, to, it's technical. Everything's technical. I understand that. But when you're, when you're confident, your brain is absorbing different information. You know, we, we know there's, what does Tony Robbins talk about? The reticular activating system. You know, when we set a goal, our brain takes in different information from the environment because we're constantly getting bombarded by billions of bits of information each day. And yep. our brain has to filter that out. And so when you set a goal, your brain filters in more information that relates to that goal. So it's the old thing of, I, 
kind of set myself a goal of, oh, wouldn't it be nice to buy this car? And then all of a sudden, when I'm out everywhere, I just see that car. And I, you know, I see it like 10 times more than I did before I set yeah. that goal. It's not that there are 10 times more of that car out there. It's just that my brain is, is finding that information. And I think that that can be true with putting as well. If you say you visualize a lot yourself holding putts, or visualize yourself being a great putter, when you stand over a putt, you're going to be more confident and you're probably going to be absorbing better information about how much is this going to break? What speed do I have to do? have to roll it? So I believe there is huge benefits or there are huge benefits to visualization that, you know, yeah. so a lot of the scientist-y people who would poo-poo that idea, I think, well, it could be related to brain science. We just uh, need to do uh, more research on it i totally agree with that in, in relation to putting i think putting is we're gonna have carl morris on the show soon with his book the lost art of putting and i think a lot of putting obviously you need your skill to work on your skill to actually you can't just manifest skill that doesn't exist but for for it to allow it to come out i think attitude and confidence is i mean i went from being a horrible putter to a pretty good one now and i just i step on the green but just a better attitude. Like I know bad putters and they're like, I just suck at putting. I know a great golfer who just is convinced he's a horrible putter. And I'm like, I don't actually think you're that bad. You're just telling yourself a story and you're listening to that yeah. story. Tell yourself a different story. Like you, like this guy has the skill. I know he does. He's just telling himself a story that he keeps listening to over and over and over again. And I absolutely believe in that with even other parts of the game too. You believe yeah. you're a crappy driver of the golf ball, you're going to be paying attention to all the shots that go out of bounds and focusing on those and worrying about them when you step up to the tee. Yeah, and putting's probably the area of the game that is, you guys might argue with this, but is less about a player's skill, right? Technical skill, like even a player with a horrible putting totally stroke agree can with, still be a totally great agree putter. with you. Absolutely. Because it is, I think, much more in your mind and your projection of what's going to happen and how you can kind of anticipate the look and the feel and the sound of the putt. And yeah, I think it's it's hugely important for you know for everything, but especially putting. I think I think Jack Nicholas said that he never missed a putt in his mind. And I think there's a, a video or a story of him being interviewed after a round of golf and a you know, somebody challenging him and saying, Well, yeah, you did, you missed uh, that putt yeah. on the whatever hole. And he said, No, I didn't. I think the question was, did you ever miss a three-footer or something like that in a major tournament, something like that? And the guy asked him at a press conference, he's like, no. He's like, well, I saw you. He's like, no, I didn't. And the guy asked a follow-up question again. He's like, no, I didn't. <laughs> That's a legendary yeah, I mean, story. The, the brain obviously wants to store negatives more than it does positives because it's more it's important for us to know where the potential threats come from for our survival. And so, you know, that's what we're, well, that's what's automatically happening all the time. In most cases, that's no longer helpful to us at all. And um, it was helpful to us, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, but, but not anymore, but the brain still works in that way. And so to find ways to be able to reverse that negative bias and focus on the positive things that are happening, and according to neuroscientists, the subconscious doesn't know the difference between what's real and imagined. You know, in other words, that's why visualization works, you know, hypnosis works. To be able to create these images and these experiences in your mind before they actually happen can just make you feel a completely different way when, when you're in the moment. 
Well, on that topic, I like Bob Rotella's concept of keeping a positive shot diary, you know, some of, yeah. just writing yeah. down some of the best shots you've ever had. So, you know, just reading through those and re-visualizing those ones because you, you're both doing the imaginary part, the visualization part, and you've actually hit that shot in the past. So it is real. And uh, just constantly reaffirming those things. I like, I'm sure you know Darren Brown, David. Yeah. The mentalist. He's not a golf person, but you know, he talks about attaching these things to, what's he call them? Not triggers, but maybe like pinching your thumb and your forefinger yeah. together as yeah. you're visualizing these things. And then when you're out on the golf course, you can actually do that. And if there's enough visualization, if you've been visualizing for a year about those things while pinching your thumb and forefinger together, when you do that, you'll bring about all these confident feelings, much like, you know, smelling a, a perfume brings about memories right. that are associated with that as well. Yeah. There's all these kind of interesting Yeah, ideas. I mean, so, so, so much of what we feel in a moment is down to our associative memory. So the memory, you know, things are being stored and connected with like sensory cues around us so if you're visualizing making putts you know from all over the place when you are on the green that is going to be there's going to be a feeling connected with that from your your associative memory so that's the idea behind that whereas if all you're doing is like visualizing what could go wrong then that's going to create a feeling when you're there for real as well but yeah it's it's, it's very interesting and it's something that golfers should look into I made the longest putt of my life yesterday. I think it was 75 to 80 feet and it just rolled in and like the last revolution or two. And I'm going to store that in my memory bank forever. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just so like halfway through, I'm like, that looks good. The speed's good. It's going to break now. And it just went right in. And like, I'm going to, I paid so much attention to it after the round. I was thinking about it when I was driving home. Like, yeah, like what you said, Adam, like I, I had a, a guy who I used to play college golf with and he said the same thing, you know, Rotella said it's a very similar concept is that you you store this, you internalize all these wins and you have this kind of scrapbook in your brain of all these triumphs you've had on the golf course. And if you pay more attention to those, like you won't be, I, I used to just go on the golf course with a fear, like everywhere I looked, I'm like, you're going to hit it there. You're going to hit it there. Like that, that's in play. And you know, over the past 20 years now, I've narrowed that focus. I'm like, I'm probably going to hit it over there most of the time. And I'm not so worried about that fuzzy area outside of that, but it can happen. I, I acknowledge that. So it, it's, yeah, the mind, like, yeah, you, you can manifest some crazy things with your brain. I mean, people manifest diseases that don't exist. I mean, we know, right. we know what we're capable of as humans. We're doing what we always do here, David. We're veering far off topic. But no, but, like but, it, but, but it is very interesting. <laughs> I, I hoped I played a run a couple of years ago and it was a beautiful afternoon. We were on the 17th hole. You can see the clubhouse up the hill and it was in the fall. It was just an absolutely spectacular day and it was on the green about 50 foot away, par three and made this putt. But before I said the putt, I said to myself, you can make this. And I hadn't said that all day, but I just had this feeling about this putt. And now that's a trigger for me when I'm putting. It's like, you can make this and it, it just creates that you know, brings me to that, how I felt in that moment on that, that 17th hole that are on a mink. And yeah, so I think triggers are, triggers can be very powerful in, in pre-shot routines. And all the reason to look back on your rounds analytically, kind of store the wins, maybe look at the losses through a more like non-emotional way, like what could I have done differently? But yeah, that memory bank of wins is 
you need that lifeboat out there because golf, <laughs> sometimes you feel like you're on that island or in the middle of the ocean just grasping for something. And there are those memories if you let them in. They're, they're powerful once they're there. I really do believe in it also because it is such a game of solitude at times, even though we're around other people, like you often feel alone when your things aren't going well. And yeah, if you could suck those memories in and keep them there and really think about them. It, it's it's huge. I, I, I totally believe in this now. It's taken me a long time to arrive at it, but focusing on the bad stuff for 15 years wasn't working for me. <laughs> I've got a little uh, story about, I had this girl who I was training her for you know quite some time over the course of a few months and she was struggling with the driver yips. And we, you know, videoed her swing. We looked at it on GC quad and everything was great. She would beat these balls straight down the target on the, on the practice range. No problem. She would hit, I'd set little targets for her. There was similar a fairway and she'd hit it eight, nine times out of 10. And I'm, I'm like, there's nothing wrong. And we would go on the course and it would be everywhere. And I, it just baffled me and we, we'd repeat this process for a couple of weeks. And in the end, I was kind of lost a little bit because it was more of a mental thing. And I, I thought, right, what I'm going to do with her is take her out on a buggy and we're going to stand on a tee and just hit shots until she hits the fairway. And then we're going to move on to the next one. So the first hole, she hit three shots, way right. And then the next one, she hit the fairway. And I right, right, buggy, second hole. And repeated that process. So sometimes she'd hit it straight away. Sometimes it'd take her three, four, five attempts to hit the fairway. But at the end of that round, she's now got memories of every single hole hitting the fairway. And also, whenever she hit the fairway, I made her do a, a, a foot tap and a club twirl, just like Tiger did. So then I asked her to go off and just visualize, sit down for five minutes and visualize each of the good shots when you did the foot tap and the club twirl. And that greatly, greatly improved her. I think she went from hitting about 20 or 30% fairways up to about 60 or 70 within a month of just doing this, just from pure confidence stuff. And I can't, I can't say that's going to work every time to someone, but it's certainly some, something that you can try if you have had these kind of yips and you feel like on the range, you're great, but on the course, it's, uh, it's a nightmare. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I speak to a lot of people about the yips and 90% of the time they can do it in practice. No problem at all. You know, they can putt beautifully. But then, yeah, there's that negative association, that deeply ingrained fear that is just triggered, you know, when they're getting ready to putt. And it's, it's all the, the stored emotions of embarrassment and frustration and all that kind of stuff that just kind of manifests itself so that is a good way to you know to overcome the yips is through that sort of subconscious you know re reprogramming and storing more positive memories yeah i have a way every time i hit a good drive i have a way where i like it's probably obnoxious but i do kind of an early t grab and i i literally i bet you can time and look at the way i bend down to pick it up and walk back it's probably the same time every every time when I hit a good drive. I don't even look. I just pick it up and walk back. It's helped me tremendously with my confidence off the tee, which was a disaster for me in the past. And it's you know just kind of stumbled onto that. But yeah, it's we're just all like searching for these little things that can work for a while, and then they might not work, and then you have to find something else. Like it's it's not again. It's I don't think anything's ever solved in golf. You just kind of keep finding these different solutions. So, John, is, is your trigger to 
pick up the tea off the ground before you start your your pre-shot routine. No, no, meaning like after. <laughs> I was, yeah, yeah, I'll just, I'll I was just about to say <laughs> the same <laughs> thing. I'll just get, well, you want to hear my pre-shot routine, what a psychopath I am. I have uh, reoccurring nightmares about, I'm very particular about how I tee the ball up in terms of height. I have a reoccurring nightmare about me not finding the right tee height and then all these people watching me and being like, come on, let's go, let's go. And there are times on the course where I'm, you'll see me fiddling with my tee height and my free shot routine and you're be like, what is this guy doing? So I'll admit to that too. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Did we do it all? We're at an hour, 40 minutes. Are we taking too much of this guy's time slash are people sick of hearing us talk limit? <laughs> A little mixture of both, maybe. I think it's been great. I think the topics that we, when we branched off topic, it was it was all good stuff. That's what yeah. we do. We, we we start somewhere, yeah. we end up somewhere right. entirely different. Right, right. That, that's, yeah, that's <laughs> what it's all about, exploring. Well, thank you, David, for yeah, thank giving you. us a, a huge chunk of your afternoon. Tell everyone where they can find you and your programs. Yeah, so my website is golfstateofmind.com. And my social media handles are all at Golf State of Mind. And so if you go over to the website, I've got some you know, lots of free articles and mental scorecards and things you can download and get, uh, get started on working on a better mental game. Yeah, we've known, I mean, Adam and I have known David for years. He's definitely a, a trusted resource. I love his website. I've referred many people from Practical Golf over to you over the years. So yeah, you have a lot of great, even free stuff on there that people should go check out. Adam, where can everyone find you? AdamYoungGolf.com and the tracking sheet that I mentioned endlessly in here because I know people will ask me for that. It's for Next Level Golf members, so join if you haven't. And if you are a Next Level Golf member, it's in the university section, the routines module. And the last video on that page is about post-shot routine. And so there's actually a downloadable PDF where you can track the faults and the video shows you how it shows me in real life, real terms doing it as well. John, where can people find you? You can check out my book, The Four Foundations of Golf on Amazon. I talk a lot about these topics with my own spin on it, some similar stuff, some different takes. Find that on Amazon and always check me out at practical-golf.com. Thank you everyone for listening. We deeply appreciate it and we will see you next time.